Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa podcast now on the Mighty Midas Touch Network. So look for all future episodes of our show behind the blue banner, and we're glad you're here. And now for the news. So here's a quick rundown of Iowa. First of all, there were no shocks, it was freezing, and Trump won by a landslide. Vivek Ramaswamy came in fourth and did what everyone expected he dropped out. But I guess Vivek finally got the hint, Republicans don't like immigrants. And anyway, third place Nikki Haley is apparently not MAGA approved. But meatball Ron DeSantis, well, he delivered the only surprise of the night by coming in second, which sadly keeps him in the race, for now. Truth is, Iowa is small, rural, red state. So a win there is certainly better than a loss, but I want you to think about it. Half of the Republicans in Iowa did not pick Donald Trump. Half. And after a lame start to a race with a foregone conclusion, ABC canceled their scheduled Republican debate for next week. And here's why. When half the nominees can't be bothered to show up, well, neither do the viewers. So on to New Hampshire, where Nikki's thinking that she's going to get lucky. Now who knows? We'll see. But by now, I'm sure you've heard that Joe Tacopina, trial lawyer for Trump, dumped his ass on Monday, just a day before Trump's defamation trial started. And Tacopina took his whole legal team with him. The reasons are unclear, but the result is, another one bites the dust. And as for comment, Stephen Chung, a spokesman for Trump, I mean, he didn't directly address Takapina's departure, saying only that Mr. Trump, and here's the quote, this is the best, has the most experienced, qualified, disciplined, and overall blah, blah, blah legal team ever assembled. Yeah, yeah, right. Listen, I worked for the man for 15 years. I know these people. This is not even the C team. They're the fucking D team. He's got the worst group of lawyers imaginable. So I certainly can't wait to see who shows up to defend him when the hush money case starts in March. And speaking of Trump's defamation trial, a jury heard testimony from E. Jean Carroll on Wednesday. And Trump has already been found guilty of sexually assaulting Miss Carroll and was previously ordered to pay $5 million. I mean, this is a separate trial, a separate trial to determine how much he's going to have to pay for defaming her again. But can't stop it because Alina Haba is once again Trump's attorney and spokesperson, but a legal genius she is not. She's already pissed off Judge Kaplan by asking multiple times if the trial could be suspended on Thursday. And why is she asking? So that Trump could go to his mother-in-law's funeral, which is total bullshit. But whatever, it doesn't matter. Each day, Haba asked, and each time, Judge Kaplan just said no. Until finally on Wednesday, he just ran out of patience and he snapped at her and told her to sit down. 
And you know Trump doesn't need to be in court, right? I mean, the trial will go on with or without him. But Haba is just trying to paint big mouth Donald Von Schitzenpants as a victim of the court, who is once again being picked on and abused by mean old Democrat Judge Kaplan. I mean, it's such a load of shit. Trump spends all day in court threatening Carol and whispering, of course, whispering in a way so the whole court can hear him, con job, witch hunt, blah, 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 blah. I mean, all the while, he's defaming her and Judge Kaplan on his fake Twitter account. I mean, it's fucking unbelievable that a 77-year-old man-child, a former president of the United States, can't control himself even while sitting in a court of law. But this is all part of the act. It's his shtick. He's not in court to defend himself. No, he's in court to campaign and to grift for money. And let me tell you, it's ugly in that courtroom. I mean, the jury has had to hide their names in order to hear the case without getting death threats from Republicans and maggots. So I want you to think about it. Trump's cult is so fucking violent that the identity of jurors has to be hidden. And E. Jean Carroll once again braved the wrath of Trump world and testified against him. I mean, looking right at his fat, spray-tanned face, she told the court that he was a liar. And by doing that, she spoke truth to power for countless survivors of sexual abuse. So good on her. But she did it at her own peril. Look, once again, I know exactly what she's going through. I know what she feels like because I went through it when I testified before the grand jury in the upcoming March 25th case. And no amount of money will ever repair the damage that Trump has already done to her and to others. Or what the maggots will continue to do to her. I mean, Carol is the real victim. But unlike Trump, she has guts. And Judge Kaplan wasn't playing when he warned the former president's right to be at his trial can be forfeited. Now moving on, the House of Representatives is continuing to veer helplessly out of control. Just because MAGA Mike Johnson has struck a temporary deal to keep the government from shutting down, the ultra MAGA Freedom Caucus is threatening to shut him down. So what does he do? What does MAGA Mike do? Well, he says that the bipartisan immigration measure being negotiated now in the Senate will be dead on arrival when it gets to the House, where Republicans have insisted that they will not pass additional funding for Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan without a measure addressing the border. At the same time, they have also refused Biden's offer to negotiate. I mean, clearly trying to preserve the immigration issue as a way to piss off the base and to get them to the polls. Johnson told his conference that Congress cannot solve the border until Trump is elected or a Republican is back in the White House. I mean, who the fuck says something like that? In Iowa, Trump promised, as soon as I take the oath of office, I'll begin the largest deportation operation in American history. And you know what? He's not joking. 
President Biden's request for $61 billion in military assistance for Ukraine has been held up and it's making a bleak winter even more difficult for the Ukrainians. Biden invited the major players from both sides of the aisle to meet with him at the White House on Wednesday. So we'll see if he can talk any sense into Republicans. But why? Why attach a deal to fund Ukraine against Putin's aggression to the southern border of Ukraine? I mean, why? Why attach this as part of the United States and keeping it afloat? Well, the answer is that the border is broken, and it's broken because Republicans refuse to help to fix it. In Texas, Governor Greg Abbott, I mean, that sick fuck, let a mother and her two children drown, drown while trying to cross the Rio Grande. Texas soldiers, a.k.a. Abbott's brown shirts, literally prevented Border Patrol officers from helping the distressed migrants cross. And they died. A lawyer for the Department of Health and Human Services wrote to the very crooked Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton demanding that Texas stop blocking Border Patrol officers. I mean, but seriously, what the fuck, Texas? They watched. They watched as people died. This is ridiculous. But the damage is already done. The images of that poor woman and her children will never be erased from our memories. And naturally, nobody wants to take responsibility. The Texas troops claim that they didn't see any distressed migrants. And Abbott insisted that the migrants were already dead when his troops stopped the Border Patrol from helping. And I'm calling fucking bullshit on that. Abbott then tried to pin the deaths on Joe Biden. I mean, seriously, he tried to pin the deaths on Biden because, he said, and I quote, Biden's policies encourage migrants to attempt the crossing. I mean, it's all word salad and hatred aimed at the most desperate amongst us. And please don't tell me that you are a Christian when you know perfectly well that this is not what Jesus would do. And now for the main event. Today we welcome to the show Professor Ray Brusher, the Associate Dean for Research and Intellectual Life at Albany Law School. He has been featured on the LA Times, the Washington Post, and the Hill, to name just a few. His profile in the New York Times was entitled, Big Cases, Small Pay, and a Lawyer Happy with Both. Brusha is the author of The Future of Change, How Technology Shapes Social Revolutions, and several other fascinating titles, including his latest, Lawyer Nation, The Past, Present, and Future of the American Legal Profession. So let's go now to that conversation. Okay, so I'm here today and I'm honored. First time on Maya Culpa, Professor Ray Brusha. Ray, let me just jump right in here and say... And I hope you don't mind that I call you Ray, but you're I a do not at all. Thank you. Thank you. Well, you're a historian, so I'm interested to hear your thoughts on so many things. But let's jump in and talk about Trump's various trials. Right now, we're still waiting to hear from an appeals court about whether or not Trump is entitled to full immunity for the crimes that he committed while in office. What's your take on how the D.C. Circuit Court will rule? 
Well, it's always, you know, it's thank you for having me and thank you for calling me historian. I'm really a lawyer uh, who is interested in history and particularly the history of the the legal profession. Um, It's always hard to predict what a court is going to say. Uh, And, you know, you can try to read the tea leaves from, you know, past decisions from oral argument. I don't think it's really hard to make the call here on how the D.C. Circuit is going to rule. Uh, I think it is very likely that they are going to hold that uh, the former president is not immune to the full extent that he is asking for. Right. The full you know, absolute immunity for anything that happened you know, while uh, he was in office. Uh, you know, there may be some you know, stuff around the margins, around, uh, you know, sending it back to the district court to, to specify, you know, what does, you know, what does the court determine were official acts, which were not official acts? Uh, you know, I, I think it's, it, that's at the margins, though. Uh, the, there, there's really nothing, there was no supportable argument for granting the former president the immunity that he sought. Um, the, the lawyer, you know, lawyers made about as good a case as you could uh, for mm. a, a losing argument. But uh, I, I don't think there's any um, doubt that the D.C. Circuit is going to uh, rule that he is not immune to the extent he's seeking. You know, it's funny because Alina Haba has raised this issue. I think it's now about 20 times in a whole series of various different cases. And they have lost each and every time that they have tried to raise this complete and total immunity claim for anything and everything, whether Trump was in office or even post office, making the connection that whatever it is that happened post is a direct link to what happened while he was in office. Because I truly do understand that a president has to be given full reign in order to do things so that he could run the country in the most equitable fashion possible. But that does not include shooting someone on Fifth Avenue and getting away with it. That's the argument that they're trying to raise right now, that there's nothing outside of the scope. And that was done by John Sauer in what I thought was the stupidest comment that I've ever heard come out of a lawyer's mouth, especially one who's really not a stupid guy. Well, again, I think they made about as good as argument as an argument one could make with a terribly losing hand, right? Which doesn't mean it was a good argument, but it it was about as good as they could try, right? Uh, there, there's an old uh, uh, you know saying about you know Rule Eleven, which is what governs frivolous. Uh, claims and frivolous factual arguments, right? If you can make an argument with a straight face and not laugh, right? Like while you're making it, then it arguably could, you know, pass the rule 11 standard. Uh, I think that danced up to the edge, but was it frivolous? 
I, you know, it was was made in good faith. Again, it was the best argument they had. It was like, you know, bluffing when you had a two and a five in your hand, you know. Professor, uh, was it really, the- Professor, though, was it really made in good faith? Because look how many cases we've now seen Donald get sanctioned for or reprimanded on for making frivolous cases. First and foremost, there was the lawsuit that he brought in Florida uh, against Hillary Clinton. He and Alina Habba sanctioned a million dollars on that case. Then you had, of course, the action that he brought against me for $500 million, completely frivolous, took it all the way up to the point that he would have gotten ass smacked for it. And so then he drops it, which saved him quite a bit. Then, of course, he gets smacked by the uh, by the court again for I think it's like another three hundred ninety thousand for uh, a frivolous action against the New York Times uh, and others. And I know that there's a whole bunch that I'm not even uh, remembering uh, simply because everything with Donald Trump comes in bunches because they are frivolous. That's like, it's no different than his delay tactics. It's no different than the fact that he makes a claim that he needs a delay so that he could grieve with Melania during the, you know, this mourning period and the loss of her mom, Amelia. But he's out campaigning and he hasn't been by Melania's side at all. Not while well, Amelia was still, was still on this earth and not afterwards. So I think there's a difference between what could stand for a good faith argument and whether the argument was made in good faith. All the things you said about, you know, being sanctioned. I think today uh, the the New York Times either won or they asked for attorney's fees in, in uh, the case that he brought against them. Uh, and, and the case against Hillary Clinton, sanctions for frivolous cases, you know, absolutely. What, did Sauer make that argument in bad faith? I don't know the answer. I can't get into his head. You know, the standard is, are you making a good faith argument for the reversal, extension, or modification of existing law? That's the standard. And, you know, the arguments were creative. You know, were they, were they, you know, were they frivolous to the point that there was no basis for making the arguments, right? Uh, and and the that the sense of what's frivolous changes over time, right? If somebody 25 years ago had said the Equal Protection Clause protects marriage equality, right? They mm-hmm. might have been laughed out of court. Today, that's the law of the land, right? right. So what changes, you know, or the, the what's this our sense of what is frivolous changes over time. So in this instance, you know, we can't get inside Sauer's head. We can't say he, in bad faith, made those arguments. What I'm saying is that's about as good an argument as you can make, given how bad a hand they had, right? Uh, And, and, you know, I, I don't see a court sanctioning him for making those arguments, right? You can lose a case and not have a frivolous argument. Right. There are some of the other cases, some of the cases you described where the claims were, in fact, frivolous. Um, I think, you know, this morning, 
you know, with the, the E. Jean Carroll case is, is going back to court. And this morning, the former president is out there. I think someone said he had 40 tweets this morning about, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, maligning Ms. Carroll, right? Which is what the case is about, you know? So there are lots of instances where there was, you know, bad faith conduct on a part, on the part of the former president and some of, you know, his lawyers, some lawyers working on behalf of, uh, you know, trying to overturn the election, 100%. Were these arguments, you know, did they pass that straight face test? I think an argument could be made. Are they winners? I don't think so. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I see it as a massive loser. Have you ever wished that you had a whiter and a brighter smile? Well, before you visit a dentist, you should know that their whitening treatments can be very expensive. And it's not just the price. You also have to book the appointment and schedule time away from work or family to sit in a dentist's office chair while undergoing the procedure. I mean, let's be honest. It's a hassle. Fortunately, now you can try Smile Actives at home or anywhere, anytime. Smile Actives offers a safe and an affordable alternative to those expensive whitening processes. Like most people, I'm a big coffee drinker. I drink a ton of coffee. And over time, I've noticed that my teeth have lost some of their brightness that I was originally used to seeing. 97% of Smile Active users in a clinical trial reported up to six shades whiter on average, all within 30 days. I'm using it. Look. I mean, simply add Smile Active Pro Whitening Gel to your regular toothpaste. It's been formulated with PolyClean technology to boost stain removal and deliver active whitening ingredients into your teeth's grooves and crannies so that you get better whitening. Smile Actives makes a teeth whitening gel that can simply be added to your toothpaste every time that you brush your teeth. So no change in your routine, no extra time, and no more messy strips, trays, or lights. People will start commenting on your whiter, your brighter smile in just days. Smile Actives is the whitening boost your favorite toothpaste needs to give you the smile that you deserve. So I want you all right now to visit smileactives.com forward slash Cohen today to receive a special buy one, get one free offer with auto delivery plus free shipping and handling. That's smileactives.com slash Cohen. Terms and conditions apply. So see the site for detail. But is there any chance that Trump's D.C. election fraud trial starts anywhere near that March 4th date that was set by Judge Chutkin? Well, I think that, you know, some, you know, will, has, has discovery completely stalled? I think discovery has been put uh, on hold for the most part. I think uh, uh, Jack Smith has been doing some work. I think an argument could certainly be made that that, you know, should be pushed back, uh, you know, a few weeks. I think the D.C. Circuit is going to rule quickly. And I think the Supreme Court is just going to walk away. I think they're just going to deny cert. Um, you know, they're not going to take you the really case. think you think that they're going to deny cert. I think on this on the immunity cases, I think it's it's so straightforward, you know, for their for 
uh, cert to be granted, four justices have to agree to hear the case. I think the D.C. Circuit is going to be, you know, a very straightforward by the book, you know, United States v. Nixon, the Fitzgerald case, there are cases that this is an easy one for them to just, you know, affirm the D.C. Circuit. Now, it's possible there's that intermediate step, right, where Trump could go to the D.C. Circuit as a whole, you know, what they call the en banc hearing, mm-hmm. right? So to so try to get to the, the, just, the, the judges of the D.C. Circuit to hear the case as a whole. I think they're going to swat that away, you know, uh, quite quickly. And the Supreme Court could just let it ride. You know, they, they have a they have much bigger fish to fry with the uh, the insurrection cases. Right. That is a much bigger case. But this that case one, cannot under any circumstance, Professor, that case cannot be heard until after the election. There's a thousand witnesses. There's more than several million no, 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 no. documents. I'm ta- no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Michael. I'm talking about the the uh, the Oregon and Maine case. I'm sorry, the Colorado and Maine cases. Oregon just said they're right. going to hold off, but the the Colorado and Maine cases say uh, uh, the the administrative decision in Maine, the Colorado Supreme Court decision saying he can't be on the ballot. That's the big one. Right. And that mm-hmm. that I think the court is going to I mean, they, you know, they're going to hear that case. They but have the to. court. But the court can hear more than one case. You know, speaking about, oh, of course, I mean, and and they should, because these are very serious constitutional issues that have never been brought before the Supreme Court, because this country in its 200 and approximately 50 years since the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Our forefathers never contemplated something as fucking crazy as what we're experiencing right now. And the Supreme Court seems to constantly take the position that it's not for the court to decide, but rather it's for Congress. And I'm living that type of case right now as a result of the um, overturning of Dobbs. It also affected Bivens. And as a result of the effect of Bivens, you can't sue the government for a violation of your constitutional rights. They want you to go to Congress and have Congress figure out what the remedy should be. And, you know, I just uh, appeared before the Second Circuit. In fact, I was speaking with my lawyers the other day. We're going to make a request for in banc. And we're going to appeal this case as well to the Supreme Court of the United States. How is it that I mean, the Supreme Court could potentially even refuse the writ of certiorari to the Supreme Court on a case where, number one, it's a first impression. It created the very first political prisoner ever held in this country because he failed to waive or refused to waive his First Amendment constitutional right and was remanded back to prison for that that reason. I mean, I don't understand how this case has gotten to where it's even at. I don't understand how the initial judge, uh, Judge Lyman, ended up not seeing fit 
to at least give me my day in court. Let me get my discovery so I could prove exactly who was behind this because it wasn't some low-level peons over at Department of Corrections like an Adam Pakula or an Enid Phoebus or Patrick McFarlane. It definitely wasn't them. This thing came from well above their pay grade. All right, we need to find that out so that it never happens to another American citizen ever again. Then we really thought after we took the case to the Second Circuit, anybody that was listening to this thing, you heard, especially uh, Judge Barrington Parker, he went off on government and they didn't even allow Alina Haba to finish her five minutes. She only spoke like three minutes and 15 seconds. They said, you know what, we've heard enough about, we've heard enough from you. She didn't even know that the blasting game refuted everything that she was talking about, the case of blasting game. And they were like, oh, you know what, forget it, we've heard enough from you. I absolutely thought that we had won that, but they turned around and they said, yeah, you know, um, this is... Well, so it, it, it is hard to case, read uh, how a court's yeah. going to rule from the oral arguments. Yeah, it's a yeah. case of first impression, yeah. but we still think that this is something that, as a result of the overturning of Dobbs, that, you know, we cannot rule on, even though there was an exclusion, unless it is of the most uh, unusual circumstance. And we said to the judges... If this is not the most unusual circumstance, what is? So my fear in this long sort of winded story about myself here is that I'm not so sure whether or not the Supreme Court will grant the writ of certiorari on this Trump matter. Well, which which one are you talking about? Are your case? I'm, no, I'm talking about well, mine. I'm. I'm more nervous about mine than I am. Well, I should say I'm nervous about them both because one affects everybody and the other affects everybody too. I'm talking well, so, about the Trump yeah, matter. So if with the about, immunity, with the yeah, with the immunity case, if the D.C. Circuit rules, as I think we both think they will, that Trump doesn't have the immunity to the extent he's asking for it, then the Supreme Court not hearing it leaves that decision in place, right? So a denial of cert is not supposed to be, you know, have presidential value, but it's not going to stop the case from going forward, right? So, mm -hmm. so them denying cert, I think that the chief justice is very concerned about not appearing like he or the court in general has its thumb on the scales for president, former President Trump, right? Um, so this one, the immunity case, I think it's, you. one can see them saying, let's stay away from this one. Let's leave that decision in place. Let's let the case play out. I can see them doing that because they, you know, they could step in, they could stay the order, and they could effectively kill that case until at least after the election, right? They could do all that. That's not a good look. So no. I, 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 unless they're going to hear it on a very fast track, which they might do, 
You know, Bush v. Gore was decided in a matter of weeks. They mm-hmm. could decide that immunity case very quickly if they wanted to. The easier course of action is just to say, we're not going to review it, right? Because again, as I said before, they've got bigger fish to fry. They've got these ballot cases that are much bigger, much weightier. Assuming that they say that, that we're not going to hear it now, how do you think? Does that play out as a win for Trump or is that a loss for Trump? Oh, no. Oh, if he's if the D.C. Circuit says he is not immune, that is absolutely a loss for Trump. Right. Massive. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so there's a question. There's even a question lurking in the D.C. Circuit case. And this is this is something that if the D.C. Circuit goes in this direction, this may be something that the court takes up is that, you know, there was some arguments in the amicus briefs, I believe, that said, you know, the friends of the court briefs that said, hey, this isn't even an appealable order. Just saying that, you know, Trump is immune, right? That's something that you, you know, if you lose at the trial court, that is something that has to be heard after the case is over, right? Mm -hmm. If the D.C. Circuit says that, that's something the court may take up. Um, but we'll see. You know, I, I think that the I do think an easy way out for the court is to not review a decision, even one that says he's not immune. And I, I, I see that as, as uh, first, I think the D.C. Circuit is going to rule that way. Second, I think there's a chance the court is just going to allow it to stand. Mm-hmm. Well, OK, so then two things. The first is. Obviously, this March 4th date for the case that's being handled by Judge Chutkin, that's the Jack Smith matter, that affected the Alvin Bragg Manhattan DA state criminal case. And Alvin Bragg was very gracious. And he said, even though that Bragg filed first, I will concede my time slot (laughs) to you and I will push back the case, my case, until yours goes, you know, um, you know, um, goes goes first on Mm -hmm. that anticipated March 4th date. That March 4th date is not going to happen. I think you agree with that, correct? I I think that's probably right. I think that's probably right. Is it in the interest of due process, giving, you know, giving uh, the Trump team the opportunity to, to, to complete trial preparation while things have been on hold, mostly, uh, I think that that's uh, that's fair that there there you know, could there be a four week delay, a six week delay? I don't think it's going to be much more than that if the D.C. Circuit rules quickly, which I think they're going to. OK, maybe. But we don't know. Maybe. That's the problem. We so don't know. The Alvin Bray case is scheduled to start March 25th. Once you start that case, it's not as if, though, in two or three weeks thereafter, when the um, Court of Appeals makes its decision that they can now put the Manhattan DA case on hold and allow this case to proceed forward. That then pushes the Chutkin case out probably till July because it is only fair to a defendant to give them time after another case terminates 
assuming that there's another case as there is three more coming down the pike for Donald, you got to give them time to prepare for the next one as well. And so that's why I say the next one wouldn't start until July. And then August is always problematic for the courts because of the recess that they take. We're really now getting into September, and that's dangerously close to the election. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, when I, 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 when I was a practicing attorney uh, and, a, and, a, and a young attorney, I would be in court in August and I'd be like, where is everybody? Yeah. You know, uh, I didn't realize no one told me that. Yeah. Lawyers in New York just take August off. You know, no one, no one told me that. Uh, I don't know that if, if these cases are going, uh, you know, there's nothing that's, it's not like the Supreme court that has, you know, specific terms. Trial courts don't work that way. Uh, and I don't think, uh, you know, Judge Hutchkin or, or, or any of these other cases are going to say, oh, folks, I know everyone's going to be in Martha's Vineyard or wherever. So let's just, you know, the, the fate of the Republic is, you know, uh, in the balance here. But let's just let's just all take off for August. I don't think that's happening here. So I, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen with uh, the Alvin Bragg case, you know, uh, it you certainly one could certainly see that going ahead in late March. And then, you know, the Chutkin case, you know, they sort of leapfrog each other that the D.C. circuit, the D.C. district court case, you know, starts late April, early May. Just because a defendant has a couple of cases going on at the same time, certainly one can't be in the same place at the same time if the defendant needs to be in court. But there's nothing to say that the Trump legal team can't walk and chew gum at the same time, right? Wait, they wait, can wait, be wait, wait. Have, you seen, have you seen his lawyers, Professor? Well, that, you know, I, I have not. So <laughs> I can't, I can't uh, talk to, to the quality of his representation. He does seem to have a hard time finding lawyers to represent him. But, uh, you know, I, I, you know, nothing if, if, a, if uh, your average defendant had, you know, had, had committed, had, had been charged, with multiple crimes in multiple jurisdictions, you know, there might be some accommodation made uh, so that they're, you know, the trial dates aren't the exact same day. But the average defendant doesn't, you know, just like, oh, we'll just put your case off for six months. You know, that's not that doesn't happen. Could, uh, you know, the, the, the Bragg case go forward, you know, relatively quickly uh, and conclude? I mean, I think you would feel it. I, you're probably. I, I well, know that it can. Well, I'm not getting to whether you're you're a witness or not, but I am. Like that's pretty much an open and shut case, isn't it? I mean, I am. I've already been subpoenaed. Uh, it's it's out there. It looks as if those Stormy Daniels may be uh, coming in to testify as well, which will always, of course, bring a lot of fanfare, you know, to that table. Um, I don't think that it's a it's the Judge Mershon case. Uh, you know, the Alvin Bragg uh, prosecution mm-hmm. case. I don't see that as a very long trial. Uh, right. I think it'd probably be almost as long to voir dire the jury as it would be to put on the case. This is a very simple case. It's a case that deals with yeah. documents and maybe maybe 10 people in total, in total, for as witnesses. So how long could that That's take? Right. Two weeks? Yeah, I don't mean Three forgive weeks? me. I said open and shut case. What I meant was... It is an open it, and shut case. 
I, I'm not, I have no, I, I can't speak to the merits of the case. What I mean is what you said before about it doesn't seem like there are a lot of witnesses, right? It's not, you know, uh, a, a massive RICO case like the Georgia case, right? right? It's not a massive case with, you know, potentially dozens, if not hundreds of witnesses. That, but I think you're right. The voir dire, the selection of the jury could mm-hmm. be could be challenging and could take some time. Yeah, but I've seen judges pick juries very quickly. I've seen judges take a long time to pick a jury, you know? Yeah, and Mershon is, as you know, Judge Mershon is not one to, you know, to horse around. He's right in there, and they will find a jury, and they will move that. I believe that case yeah. would move in four to six weeks. It'd be over, which, and, you know, and it's a jury. It'll Unless Alina Hobbit doesn't click the box again, <laughs> you know, uh, it'll, it'll, be a, it'll be a jury yeah. trial. So Are tell you- me if... Are you saying that the Trump legal team neglected to ask for a jury trial and then complained that they didn't get a jury trial in the uh, in the the case involving the uh, tax returns? Well, let me say that that has been reported at least more than once. So if you would, Professor, tell my listeners what you think is the most likely scenario with regard to Trump's election fraud trial. If it comes to court before the election, of course. How do you see this thing playing out? Do you mean the which which one? The, the <laughs> Georgia case, the the Colorado case, the Maine case? What? Which no, the Georgia about? the Georgia case. Well, you know, I mean, there's a a, a you know a, a monkey wrench has been thrown into that case. Uh, allegations of uh, improper uh, conduct on the part of uh, D. A. Willis. Um, I don't know if that's something that will be resolved quickly. Um, I, you know, that case could take a very long time, um, even with a number of the uh, co-defendants pleading guilty. Um, so, uh, you know, that could, you know, that the this is this is a threshold issue: the issue of whether or not one of the uh, private uh, lawyers who brought in on the case had an imp- had a relationship with the DA that's a that's a raises uh, you know questions that need to be answered you know and that could that alone could take some time to resolve but I think the that, that you know the Georgia case um, you know very you know, put together very differently than special prosecutor Smith's case in DC right Um one defendant in in DC, I think it was originally nineteen defendants in Georgia. You know, relatively straightforward claims in DC, sprawling allegations of uh, conspiracy. You know, those cases don't happen overnight. You know, uh, and and it's not. You know, you can't say, well, we need to get it resolved by the election. I, I don't know that you know one can with that complex uh, complex a case. Look, I again, I I don't know either. You know, it's uh, th- the whole thing is really stunning. But if you would, at least for my you know for my listeners, explain explain for a moment the. The claim that there's an improper relationship between this gentleman and uh, the district attorney, Fannie Willis, uh, the, an attorney, and, um, and Fannie Willis. How is that even relevant to Trump's case? And why should that be 
a significant delay. You can answer these questions overnight. I mean, let's not forget, my case started and finished in 48 hours. If they really want to get something done, they can get it done. They're just afraid to do it. Well, I, I don't know all the details, uh, and I, I don't know that the, the DA's office has responded to the allegations. Uh, the the allegations, uh, as I understand them, are that uh, she brought on a, a private attorney, which which is not um, it's not uh, uncommon. You know, not uncommon in complex case like this, and that there was uh, a, a intimate relationship between the two of them. And because of that, there is something improper about having him on the team. And there's a lot has been made about the, uh, you know, $600,000 uh, uh, charges that he has uh, placed on the county for his work. Uh, I, as I understand it, he's charging $250 an hour, which isn't uh, in any way an unreasonable fee. And probably my guess is that's less than he would normally charge in, in private, in, in his private practice, and what a lawyer in Atlanta uh, uh, or in, in that area in Fulton County charges. So, you know, where there's, you know, where there's smoke is there fire. The smoke is, you know, she shouldn't have hired somebody with whom she Agreed. had an intimate relationship. I don't know if she did or she didn't, you know, from the outside looking in, there doesn't seem to be anything inappropriate about hiring outside counsel, about the charges he's made, that that stuff that she has to respond to. And she hasn't yet. And I, I don't uh, I don't know what the response is going to be. Does it is it a good look if she hired somebody with whom she's having an intimate relationship? Not it's not a good look. Uh, but I again, I don't know all the facts. And to my I knowledge, mean, is it, she is hasn't it a good yet look? come forward. Right. Is it a good look to attack two two women, uh, Shai Moss and um, and Freeman, right? Uh, claiming that a mint is a uh, oh. is a thumb drive. Is it a good look to try to overturn a free and fair election because you lost? Right. I mean, yes, I agree with you. She should have been smarter as it relates to bringing somebody on that. That you knew that they were going to raise this, which would just create a delay. See, that's the whole problem here. All of the delay, delay, delay tactics of Trump seem to be working out for him. And what it does is it brings it dangerously close to the November um, election date. And nobody wants to be that court, that, you know, that judge who they could then point a finger and say, you know, this is election interference. He, you know, Trump has the right not to be on trial, but to be out before the country pleading his case. And even mm -hmm. if he loses fair and square, which I anticipate he will, and by a significant margin, I believe that Trump, no matter what, will now point a finger and say, see, see all of these delays, all of the things that you did that prevented me from being on the campaign trail. This is election interference at its best. And the saddest part is that there's still too many idiots out there, these maggot morons that believe everything he says. I think that the issue for people bringing him to court is... Their cases have to be airtight. 
you know, and, you know, any perceived misstep is evidence Mm -hmm. to the former president that it's a witch hunt, that people are using the, you know, people are weaponizing the judicial system against them. Do you, do you have anything to say about people weaponizing the ju- judicial system? Yeah. I think you might have some in experience fact, with that. In fact, I wrote a whole <laughs> book about it. I mean, it's funny so, that Donald stole my tagline from the book <laughs> and used it for himself because that's what he does. You know, he takes what happened to somebody else, which, of course, was done by him, and he's now trying to transfer it or deflect it to the, to the Biden administration against him. Amazing, right? Well, so a, a, a former coworker of mine who now teaches at CUNY Law School, John Whitlow, wrote an op-ed for the New York Times uh, when this fir- the story first broke about, you know, the, the tax fraud with the real estate and all that. You know, and he said, you know, Donald Trump is, is, is a slumlord, right? And, and the, the, you, know, the, the, you know, this is how you have to deal with him and that he... Uses you know as a slumlord, he uses the legal system to 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 fend off when the government tries to 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 hold him accountable, when tenants try to hold him accountable, and you know over the years, the former president before joining, uh, you know, before becoming president, after becoming, he has used the legal system, right? Uh, and that our, our legal system, you know, tries to have procedures in place to protect the accused. And he is using those protections as any defendant should, right? right? But the question is, which goes back to something we said earlier, is that use of the system frivolous and in bad faith? And we've already seen that at multiple occasions where it was. You, you brought up the case of the election workers. Well, you know, former Mayor Giuliani is now on the hook for nearly $150 million um, for those things, right? For, mm-hmm. for uh, attacking those election workers. Right. Uh, and we'll see what the judge does in the, the second uh, E. Jean Carroll case. You know, Roberta Kaplan is one of the best lawyers in the world. What's, right? your, what's your prediction? Uh, oh, I, I mean, he's she's going to win. I mean, there's no question. It's much? just a question of the price tag. I have no How idea. Much? I have no idea. I say uh, I mean, 10 million. I'm not a betting man. What's I that? Say t- I say 10 million. I mean, you know, I think it's going to have to be a award that is going to prevent the repeated behavior. What is that, right? You know, is that. What did you say, $10 million? And the reason I say $10 million is the first one was five. I can see a judge, because many of the judges try to be Solomonian in their thought process. In that way, they can't be attacked by being partisan. Donald, here's the warning to you. Every time you do this, we're just going to double it. We're not even going to go through this whole exercise in terms of figuring out the amount. We can have your day in court. We'll bring on juries again. But the demand will be double each and every time. So you, young man, are in control over 
the financial pain that you want to bring to yourself and the financial benefit that you will be conferring upon E. Jean Carroll. So the first one was $5 million. This one, $10 million. Do it again, it'll be 20 and then 40 and then 80 and so on and so forth, right? That's hopefully one way to shut him up. Not sure it will. I, I, I think that that's, that's going to be the question for the court. What is it going to take to prevent the illegal conduct, you know, the in, injurious conduct that uh, Ms. Carroll is uh, experiencing? What is it going to take to stop it? Um, I don't know. We, I, I think what you're saying, you know, it goes to some of these, you know, uh, people term it a gag order. It's not a gag order. It's just the normal restrictions that every litigant is under. Uh, and, you know, talk about, you know, weaponizing the, the legal system. If, you know, the traditional defendant had done a third of what defendant Trump has done in terms of going after judges and going after clerks and witnesses why does everybody keep forgetting the witnesses the witnesses too you know uh they would not be you know sort of scolded right um or given a small fine right so throw your fucking ass right in jail that's what they would do uh, I think that a, a lot of litigants who, if they had done the sorts of things that, that he has done in terms of attacking the, 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 you know, the personnel, um, you know, that, that's just, that, that can't occur, right? In a nation that, we, you know, mm-hmm. we say, forgive the gendered language, right? But John Adams said, we're a nation of laws and not men, right? We're a nation of laws. We have to have a legal system that protects people's due process rights, but also honors the rule of law. And we're seeing, you know, with, you know, the, the swatting that's happening uh, mm-hmm. and the death threats that people are receiving, uh, it, you know, this is not the rule of law. No, it's not. So let me ask you this then, because Judge Eileen Cannon, overseeing the Mar-a-Lago documents case, mm-hmm. she just refused Jack Smith's request about whether or not Trump is going to use advice of counsel defense during the trial. Now, Cannon has also refused to enforce routine deadlines. I mean, trying to keep the case from going to trial before the election. Is there any way that Jack Smith, or anyone else for that matter, can compel a speedy trial here? Well, it is it is hard. There is, uh, you know, the federal rules provide that federal judges have great discretion in terms of scheduling. Right. They, they can they can decide how, when, in what order a trial is going to occur. You know, are you going to decide, you know, one piece of it first, let other things go you know, mm-hmm. later? There's a wide degree of discretion. But at some point. Uh, you know, Jack Smith's team may feel like they need to go to the appellate court to uh, ask for an order directing, uh, you know, an order of mandamus directing that she's that she take the action she's supposed to take uh, and, uh, you know, that the discretion that she does have, that she's abusing it, right? That would be the standard. Is she abusing 
her discretion? And does that, do those actions evidence bias, right? Because the appellate court could take the case and, and could uh, send it back to the district court for reassignment, right? Appellate courts do that. They don't do it all the time, but they do do it. If there's a trial or if there's some hearings and there's uh, there's a suggestion of bias on the part of the judge, when the case comes up on appeal, the court, the, the appellate court can send it back to the district court, but say to the clerk, it has to be reassigned to a new judge, right? But pr- that's that's you know that there's a possibility there. Sure. If it if there's abuse of discretion and that discretion, the the matter in which that discretion is exercised suggests some uh, impro- improper bias. And remember the standard. We used to have, lawyers used to have the standard of appearance of impropriety. That's been taken out of the rules. It's not been taken out of the rules for judicial bias. Appearance of impropriety is the standard for judicial bias. Right, but the problem here goes right back to, again, the timing. Right before the, so if this was now going, Jack Smith was going to complain Okay, he follows the writ of mandamus. Next thing you know, you know it's going to take two, three months before you get the decision back on that because you're not going to rush anybody, right? Uh, especially not a topic like this. If he remains it back and now it goes to a different judge in the district court, that judge and his staff has to get all caught up. That's another three, four months. You're already right there, October. That's not going to happen. So, you know, it brings me to my next yeah, question no, to you. That's right. Yeah, because I'm sure that you've been observing special counsel Jack Smith's, we'll call it his 3D chess game with Trump's <laughs> lawyers. How do you think that Jack Smith is doing so far? You know, I have not been following the, you know, you know, every maneuver, every procedural step. Um, I, I, I would not put it this way. I would not want to be on the other side of Jack Smith. He seems to be as good a lawyer as it gets. Uh, and he's he's playing it, uh, you know. He is, as you said, he is playing three D chess. Um, uh, you know, he, 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 you can you you know there are there are lawyers. There are some lawyers, uh, you know, who are litigating some of these cases who are um, you know on the other side of the aisle, so to speak. I, I don't. I think Jack Smith. You can't say he's not you know Republican Democrat. He's he's doing his job. Um, you know, there are, uh, you know, Clement, there are great lawyers who are arguing some of these cases on the Trump side. Um, you know, I think Smith is up there, uh, and I would not want to be on the other side of him, put it that way. So, you know, can I just ask you another question going back to the Supreme Court? I mean, you know, how do you think that the conservative majority of the court, um, would, would behave. Do you think that they would try and help Trump? And I bring this up because once again, Alina Haba makes a statement on television, which I found to be completely inappropriate. I would say it goes beyond sanctionable. She was basically threatening a Supreme Court judge when she called out Kavanaugh by name and say, Trump went to bat for you. It would be wrong for you not to 
protect him as the guy that gave you the job. I mean, that's not the role of the Supreme Court. Somewhere along the line, this entire group of sycophantic fools, they all believe that the Supreme Court, the district judges, all of the uh, members of, uh, whether it's uh, uh, ambassadors or consulate members or military chiefs of staff, anybody that Donald Trump brought into the White House as part of the transition team, that they all owe him something. Not, I pledge allegiance to the, to the flag, I pledge allegiance to Donald J. Trump and the MAGA flag. Well, I think that the the court is very concerned about that perspective. Uh, that that the, the uh, some some of them, some of the justices on the court, and I I believe the chief justice is in this camp, uh, is very concerned about the uh, faith in the institution. Uh, you know, you can go back to the i think it was over 60 cases that were filed yep. in the wake of the 2020 election um you know there there was one case that was filed directly in the supreme court which was batted away you know in a matter of days uh because it was utterly baseless um so you know the tax I, I return think that, issue the tax return issue went to the supreme court yeah, that's right. Uh, so I don't know that the you know these you know threats to uh, justices, and, and I think that that's what they were. Um, what you reference, I think that's what that was. Um, thinly veiled, perhaps, mm-hmm. but I, I don't think you know. There's there's a reason that Article Three judges and justices have lifetime appointments. Right. We may not like that. We might we might say that, you know, well, there should be some term limits or people should, uh, you know, they should they don't have to be on the Supreme Court. You know, there's there's a people of goodwill on both sides have have, uh, interesting points. Alexander Hamilton argued for, uh, you know, the independence of the judiciary, you know, that they shouldn't have their salaries cut. They should be lifetime appointments. Um, And I I think that that's, you know, I, I, I do believe that the the justices will care about their legacy more than they will care about their loyalty to uh, to the former president. The I think there's a difference. Them. Yeah, except I think that belief by you, unfortunately, is um, it's the distinction between being optimistic and hopeful, right? I mean, that's really what I see it as. We hope and that foolish. that's what they are. Maybe I'm a fool. Now, I, I, won't, I wouldn't call you that, Professor, but I would just say it's the distinction between optimism and being hopeful. But how then might Congress get the Supreme Court to curb its political activism and get back to simply upholding the law, including cases like mine that, that I'm dealing with, with Bivens, right? The weak code of ethics for example, that Chief Justice Roberts presented, it's, it's absolutely unenforceable. So what can Congress do? Because you are so right. The Supreme Court has lost its face and it's lost its, um, it's lost its status. Well, I, I mean, it, it, was, it has gone from, you know, in, in a couple of decades. And I think that the, you know, Bush v. Gore... 
was, uh, you know, a, a real landmark in, in the decline of the trust of the American people in the court as an institution. Um, Congress, yeah, I, there are better minds than mine who are looking at this. I, I think that there are things, you know, a, a lifetime appointment doesn't mean that, uh, as, as my understanding, right, lifetime appointment doesn't mean that a Supreme Court justice gets to be a Supreme Court justice for 50 years, right? You could have limits on terms and the, and the uh, a judge or justice, uh, you know, rotates out after 14 years. You know, there, there are plans out there. Mm-hmm. I think there are some really clever and interesting ones, ones that, um, you know, don't, you know, put the thumb on the scale for any political party, uh, but, you know, a, a justice of the Supreme Court, as as some justices have done after they retire, they sit as, you know, senior judges uh, in de- in in this in um, circuit court cases, you know, to, to, as 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 um, special masters, you know, the, the Supreme Court has trial jurisdiction, right? It has original jurisdiction over some cases like, you know, uh, litigation between states, right? So sometimes a retired uh, justice will sit and preside over a a factual hearing in those sorts of cases. There are lots of things that uh, a a judge can do and still have a lifetime appointment. Uh, so, So again, there are lots of plans, lots of ideas out there. Um, and, and I think the, you know, the, the, I don't think the, the framers thought that you could have someone sit on the Supreme Court for 40 or 50 years. No, well, nobody lived that long back then anyway. But let me <laughs> ask you this then, Professor. Is it your observation? You keep calling me Professor now. Is that, uh, uh, you know, you please call me Ray. <laughs> okay, Ray. Is it your observation? Well, you know, this one is actually like a legal question. That's why I kind of thought that using professor is, you know, better <laughs> to say. It, it sort of gives better credibility to my question. But, Ray, is it your observation that most of Trump's inner circle, including the lawyers that are around him, knew about January 6th before it happened? And that many of them helped the former president craft his coup attempt? Because many of them right now are running the House of Representatives. So my question to you is why aren't they being held accountable? Well, so it's a, it's a multi-part question, uh, Counselor. Uh, so, so let's start with the first part. Um, you know, there were, there were lawyers, you know, John Eastman is one of them. Um, you know, and this is part of the historical record. And I, and I, I go into, you know, I mean, we could spend hours talking about this. I go into this in, in my recent book, Lawyer Nation. But, you know, the, the whole concept of January 6th was th- that somehow, you know, the vice president could, could discount the votes of millions of Americans. That wasn't something that, you know, a, a, um, a well-meaning Trump supporter who felt the, you know, disappointed that Trump lost the election, uh, and was coming to show, you know, their support for the former president, uh, on, you know, the ellipse on January 6th, after being invited to come to that event by the, by the president, right. You know, 
if it wasn't for the lawyers making the argument that, oh, the vice president does, you know, under the Electoral Count Act, the vice president has this power. And you read the memos, you know, John Eastman wrote a memo that basically said, hey, look, let's lay this out. If we can delay the votes, if we can throw out the votes of the six swing states, then we can win, right? Uh, And he knew that that wasn't any legitimate reading of the law, but it was an argument that they could make and then use, you know, raw power to try to enforce. So, you know, did the lawyers plan for an assault on the Capitol? I don't know. I think we're going to learn more about what happened on January 5th, right? How much time is it going to take? We have the emails. We have the text messages. We have the communications between, going back again, to some of the members of the House of Representatives. So it goes back to the second part of my question. Why are they not being held accountable? The fuck is taking so long? Well, I think that the, the, the remember we talked about the two different uh, approaches that Jack Smith and Fonnie Willis are taking. Could could Jack Smith? I don't know all the facts. I wasn't in those meetings. Uh, do, are there are is there evidence that Congress members were conspiring that they you know brought people through the Capitol? You know, I don't know what that evidence shows. Jack Smith made a conscious decision to bring a narrow case, right? Is it is it possible that other people were culpable for that? Will they ever face prosecution? I don't know the answer to that. I, I'm not I'm not a DOJ lawyer. I'm not looking at the evidence. Um, but people who uh, who uh, you know supported that um, event. Uh, you know, uh, you know, should be held to account. And you think maybe Merrick Garland should be moving some of these cases, or should have moved them faster than sitting on you know, him I like he did for so I, long? I, you know, I'm not looking at the evidence. I'm not a prosecutor. Uh, you know, I think that they, you know, what what's the line from the wire? From, you come for the king, you best not miss. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that that's, you know, I think that they took that whether whether. Uh, the attorney general has ever seen the wire. I don't know, but I do think that they uh, try to to um, take a as clear uh, uh, as and as straightforward a case as they mm-hmm. could, so that you may mean look at what's happening in Georgia with all of the satellite stuff that's happening around the right. around the heart of the case. So I think that they're um, you know I don't know what else they've got. I don't know what else they're doing. If they're doing anything, I have no idea. I'm not privy to that. No, no one should be privy to that. Uh, and I, I think the attorney general has, um, you know, played it close to the vest because he has to. Um, and and whether more is coming, I, I honestly don't know. Uh, but I do think that they wanted to, um, you know, take as, as, as clear and as straightforward a case as they could. Um, rather than get, um, you know, caught up in some of this, these, you know, uh, satellite uh, issues. Mm -hmm. So then let me ask you this, because you've talked about how the operations of courtrooms and lawyers changed as a result of COVID-19 and how emerging technology like Google Bar, the case that I'm dealing with right now, and ChatGPT, might help to bridge our nation's justice gap. 
Explain to my listeners how. Well, so I think that the it's an exciting time with artificial intelligence, with generative artificial intelligence. Uh, it could make lawyers' jobs easier. Uh, they can do their work more efficiently, more effective, uh, more effectively, and if and if they can save time in their uh, work with their clients, particularly lawyers who work in, in nonprofit areas, uh, you know, offering uh, legal services either for free or at low cost, uh, that that could extend their, their work, right? They can help more people, right? Uh, there is a risk that people who are, uh, you know, unschooled in the law, will turn to some of these, uh, you know, these artificial intelligence tools and have uh, and, and lose out on the opportunity to protect their rights because they they have this, uh, you know, they, they place their faith in what ChatGPT tells them, you know, oh, you know, you're you're a tenant and, um, you know, you, you say like, well, my lease is coming to an end you know, does my landlord have to renew my lease? You know, no. uh, and 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 ChatGPT <laughs> says, "Yeah, sure, why not? That's great. You're well, fine. Don't worry about it." You know, yeah. and that and that may not be the case. So I think that there's, uh, you know, it's a it's a uh, Brad Smith of Microsoft talks about new technologies. Uh, you know, they're tools and weapons, right? Uh, we see this with every technology, right? So there's a there is a, a risk that people without legal guidance will use generative artificial intelligence and will and their rights will be undermined but then there's also the opportunity that this can make the lawyer's job easier and more effective and thus enable them to represent more people well you know what happened with me is that you know, yes. I no longer because right now I'm still uh, in disbarment with my law license um, and so I wanted to assist, you know, a friend of mine who was putting forth a request, which are standard to the judge, um, Judge Furman in my specific case, you know, so that um, I can be released from supervised release. I'm only 10 months out anyway. I mean, plus I fit into every category and they are routinely given. So I went on to Google Bard. I put in the information. Hey, find me some cases. On from first department, second circuit, whereby um, early termination of supervised release was granted, yada, yada, and a hundred of them came down. A hundred. Well, the three that I sent to my attorney friend, what ultimately happened was that they were not legitimate citations. That Google Bard created phantom cases in order to justify. Now, my other attorney, Danya Perry, went ahead. We, the ones that found out that there was a mistake, notified the court immediately. The court didn't recognize there was a mistake. The Southern District of New York prosecutor, Nicholas Roos, the genius that he is, he didn't realize that they weren't legitimate. We notified the court, provided them with legitimate citations on the exact same premise of that the three cases um, were standing for, and then it became an entire issue. So, you know, AI is certainly incredible technology, but it's far from reliable. And that's one of the problems that I see for now. Will it ultimately get better? Yes. 
I think it gets better every single day. But the fact that it was able to create phantom cases and it made up scenarios around yeah. it. I mean, yeah. like really in-depth scenarios. So to me, it yeah. looked well, legitimate. A, yeah, well, there was a case earlier in the year where the lawyer used cases from uh, ChatGPT, I believe it was, mm -hmm. and then said, you know, I'm going to double check. I'm going to ask ChatGPT if these are legitimate cases, right? So, you know, that what I'm talking, you know, what you're saying, what you're describing is, is some of the risk. Now, you know, that people will have this, oh, you know, sense that, oh, my position is supported by legitimate cases. This is great. I'm going to now, you know, go to court. If you're non-lawyer, I'm going to go to court with these cases and stand up in court and say, your, your honor, uh, my position is supported by these cases. So a couple of, you know, if, if, and they're, they're called, you know, they call them hallucinations, right? If the, the generative AI has these hallucinations, and a, a litigant brings them to court, right? One of several things could happen. First, the court says, realizes they're not good cases and says, you know, you're, you know, you, you filed a, a frivolous case, a frivolous argument, and I may punish you for doing that. Maybe they wouldn't for a, a pro se litigant. And I would assume they, they wouldn't. Uh, they would caution them and say, you have, to, you have to be careful. Um, or the court says, oh, that's interesting. Now I'm going to issue a decision based on what you've given me, assuming mm -hmm. that they don't look up and research those cases and assuming the adversary doesn't point out that those cases aren't legitimate cases. So you can either have the, the individual being harmed or the system then adopting the hallucinations of the AI. Now, what's happening now with the legitimate legal research tools like Lexis and Westlaw mm -hmm. is that they're building their own models so that they're, you know, the research you're going to get from them that lawyers have access to, anyone has access to them, they just cost a lot of money, right? that the lawyers will have access who use those services will then have the benefit of generative AI, but it'll only be that closed universe of cases that actually exist. Right. But the normal person who's fighting, you know, they've got a, a you know, a $10,000 consumer debt case, or they're, they're being evicted, or they've got a medical debt that they're being, you know, sued by some debt collector they don't they're not going to have access to those more expensive better curated systems mm -hmm. so that you know there's that false sense of security that may come from people unwittingly using these tools that aren't really designed for providing legal services to people there's a reason that people go to law school there's a reason that people have legal training yeah but this um, is merely but this is merely just for doing some you know research in order to put into your writing it's not asking nobody asked the you know ai to write the motion for you you probably could but nobody asked you, you're doing you it for, absolutely could i mean if, if you you're looking could, for legal could, research that's one thing well i i think that, you know, you're going to see unrepresented individuals mm -hmm. filing court papers. I, we're already seeing it. Uh, filing court papers essentially generated by generative AI. Well, you know, well, 
And on one side, you might say, well, that's great because they've got some help, but not if the information is inaccurate. Agreed. Well, Professor Ray Brush, thank you so much. Um, Please, everybody, you want to just mention the name of the book one more time? Sure. Thank you. Uh, Lawyer Nation, the past, present and future of the American legal profession uh, hits bookstores uh, in the beginning of February. It's an important read, and I strongly suggest it. Professor, great seeing you. Thank, Thank you. you. We'll definitely Thank have you, you back on because there's a lot of there's a lot of legal issues that need uh, some clarification on. <laughs> well, I'm not a betting man, but let let's uh, you know we'll talk about what what happens with the D.C. Circuit and then whether the Supreme Court takes uh, takes up cert. Done. Thank you, my friend. Thank you so much. And now for today's mea culpa, the world is watching. And if you don't think our politics has anything to do with how the rest of the world operates, well, guess again, and you'd be wrong. Democracies everywhere hold us up as the democratic gold standard. And autocracies are praying, they're fucking praying that we fall apart. This year in particular will be pivotal for democracy worldwide because if Trump or any other Republican for that matter becomes our next president, our democracy is in fucking danger. The four long years of the Trump presidency weaken the foundations of our entire system. Trump's dismantling of our democracy, it didn't end when he lost in 2020. No, he was just getting started. The big lie continues to divide our nation, and if a scheme like the big lie could work here, well, it could work anywhere. Over four billion people in dozens of countries will have the chance to cast a vote this year. Whether all those elections are free and fair, I mean, that's a totally different question. And last month, Chinese President Xi Jinping said that Taiwan's reunification with China is an inevitable course of development and that it's popular with the people. No, it's not, as proven by the recent election in Taiwan, where the former vice president, Lai Chung-te, was elected against the wishes of China. The biggest irritant in U.S.-China relations across the decades has been Taiwan. In 1996, they became a proud democracy, despite China breathing down their necks. But that will not last long under Trump, who will easily acquiesce to China if there is something in it for him. Not America, for him. The Chinese government and its state-controlled entities spent over five and a half million in properties owned by Donald Trump just while he was in office, the largest total of payments made by any single foreign country known to date. I mean, that's according to financial documents cited in a report from House Democrats that was released at the beginning of the year. And my friends, that's just what we know about. Russia is also holding elections soon. I mean, not that they will be free and fair, but for two days in March, Russians are actually encouraged to vote. Yay! Right? The outcome doesn't make a fucking difference, has already been secured, but Putin likes to see folks come out to support him anyway. In fact, he insists on it. With Putin's only real rival, Alexei Navalny, I mean, lost in the bowels of the Russian prison system, who would run against him? 
And it's also worth noting that as the war grinds on in Ukraine, recent serious losses may keep people away from the polls. But Putin is keeping track, and not voting could cost you. But the war in Ukraine will be decided here. That's right, here, if Trump becomes president again. Putin will take full advantage of this bullshit close personal relationship with Donald. And my guess is funding for Ukraine will stop immediately and Ukraine will be cut off completely. The NATO alliance Biden formed to help Ukraine remains a sovereign nation will be ignored. And Russia's kleptocracy will be free, free to do as it pleases with zero pushback from the United States. And let's face it, the more divided we become, the crazier Trump gets, the better it is for Vladimir Putin. But like I say, literally billions of people will be voting in elections this year, including Mexico, India, and the UK. But the world is watching to see which way we lean, which way we go, for or against democracy. And the truth is, we can't save the world if we can't save ourselves. And as always, my friends, thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is written by Paula Killen. Our managing producer and editor is Lisa Orkin. Mea Culpa is a Midas Touch podcast, executive produced by the Midas Touch Network and LSJ Media Group. Oh, <laughs>